Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the prophet Jonah, the little book of Jonah. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 587. 587. Most of you, at least most of you here in the room, have been with us for our series uh, on the Minor Prophets. Um, if you're watching by video and, or you're not familiar, we're kind of trying to take one Minor Prophet per sermon and make our way through um, each of these one at a time. It kind of gives you some high-level view, uh, overview of the prophet. And then, again, I would encourage you, if you don't have a handout, by the way, Doug has some, just flag him down. Um, but I would encourage you uh, each week after we've done a kind of an overview of it to maybe take the time to read through that minor prophet that we studied on Sunday and uh, look for some of those themes. Look for those, some of those things that we learned as we went through the book together. So we are in the book of Jonah, again, 487. If you're using the Black Bibles, we will fly through these four chapters and uh, learn some lessons as we do from the prophet Jonah. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help and strength as we submit to His Word. Lord, we love You, and we are thankful for Your Word that reveals to us your mind, your character. Lord, may we respond well to your word this morning. May we submit to it in our hearts. Use these moments that we have together, this brief consideration of this prophet, to teach us lessons about our own heart and our own waywardness. In Christ's name, amen. Perhaps you would never admit it to anyone out loud, but who can you not stand? I mean, who in your hidden hearts of hearts do you, you just hate? Maybe it's not an individual person. Maybe there's some group of people, some nation halfway around the planet that is the arch enemy of your home country that you would just as soon see annihilated from the face of the earth. Now, now, again, you would never say this, and you're all looking at me like, no, pastor, not me. I have no hatred in my heart for any group of people. But, I mean, I mean, really search your heart. Who is it? Maybe it's a demographic. Maybe it's a nation. Maybe it's a category of people that you would just as soon see suffer the justice of God right now. And, and I mean, come on, Pastor, they really do deserve it. They really deserve God's wrath to be poured out on them. I mean, think about the evil that they're perpetrating, Pastor. They deserve God's judgment. I think if we all searched our hearts, we would at least find threads of that. We would at least find small vestiges in our own heart of, of desiring to see someone or some group of people get what's coming to them. Why do we so enjoy good movies where at the end the bad guy falls off the 50-story building and goes screaming, plummeting down to the bottom and gets splat on the sidewalk? And we all go, yes, right? 
We, we have in our hearts this longing for justice to be executed. And in the real world, there are those groups, there are those people, sometimes there are even those individuals that we long to see get their just desserts. That was where Jonah was. The prophet Jonah had in his heart this longing to see a group of people get God's judgment. And we see his account recorded for us in this little book of Jonah. I will tell you that there's probably no other book in the Bible that has grown, has my understanding and appreciation of grown in my lifetime more than the book of Jonah. I mean, like many of you, I learned about Jonah in Sunday school, right? You learned this cute little story about the man that, that got swallowed by a fish. And then as you kind of grew a little bit, you, you came to see it as more of an account that reminds us of the importance of obedience, right? Because that's what we teach little kids. Like, if you ever teach Sunday school and you're, or junior church and you're lacking for a theme, just obedience. Like, that's, that's the one that you cover, right? So, like, every lesson goes to you should obey when you're told to do something, right? So, in your, you know, in a young juvenile mind, it's, it's hearing this account of this prophet who disobeys God. God tells him to do something, and he goes and does the opposite. But then as I, I've, I've grown into adulthood, and I, I began ministry, and a few years ago studied the book of Jonah in depth, I began to see it become more multi-dimension. There are some tremendous theological truths, some very important lessons that go even beyond the question of obedience, although that is obviously a very relevant application of the account of Jonah. So I, I think there's probably no book of the Bible that has, has my understanding of has deepened more than the book of Jonah. And I've really come to just love this little book and some of the lessons that it teaches. So let me tell you a little bit about, and you have notes there, I, I trust, that is going to kind of give you some background as we study the book of Jonah together. And then we're just going to highlight some themes um, during our time today. So Jonah's audience is Assyria. I'll talk more about Assyria in a few moments, but just understand that Assyria was the dominant world power in the known world during that time. But, but not only were they known as a powerful nation, they were known around by all the nations around as cruel, unusually wicked, heinous. They would be, in modern times, convicted of war crimes many, many times over. If you look at the historical accounts of the writings of the kings of Assyria, the way that they describe treating their enemies is revolting. It is violent. It is disgusting. One of the larger and most known cities in the Assyrian realm was the city of Nineveh. God commissioned Jonah to preach his message to Nineveh one of the most powerful cities in the Assyrian kingdom. Now, that's the audience, but let's think about it a bit more deeply. Jonah is unusual in the prophets in this way. 
it is, it is not really so much a record of what the prophet prophesied, of his message itself, so much as it is the, uh, the narrative, the account surrounding the giving of the prophecy. Although, of course, kind of an abbreviated version of the prophecy is contained in the book, it's not really a record of his prophecy so much as it is a telling of this prophet's ministry. So, while Jonah's audience is Nineveh, it is Syria, in a sense, is that really the audience of the book? It's unusual because it, it almost seems like the, the true audience isn't Assyria, it's us. It is all that would follow after Jonah who could learn lessons of what a rebellious prophet looks like. The name Jonah means dove. Um, I don't know if I put that in your notes or not, but Jonah means dove. So who wrote Jonah? There's actually no direct claim made in the book uh, regarding it. Jonah is repeatedly referred to in the third person. So some read that and assume that this is not, you know, this is a third person account. This is someone else telling the story of Jonah. The rabbinical tradition holds that Jonah wrote the book. And having read a lot of evidence on both sides of this discussion, your pastor's view is that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. And if you want to sit down and talk about all the reasons I think that, um, I think perhaps the most, the most, some of the more potent arguments is some of the details that run through the book and the way the prophet Jonah is actually painted in the book. I actually think that the book of Jonah is a product of Jonah's ultimate true repentance although we don't see his actual repentance in the book. So that's, that's kind of my view. Say, so who wrote Jonah? Probably Jonah. If you disagree, that's okay. You can still be a good Christian. You'll find out I'm right when you get to heaven. Okay. So Jonah, <laughs> Jonah wrote the book, probably, uh, but we don't know that, that for sure. So let's, uh, I, I have given you an outline, perhaps that will help you, will edify you as you work through the book. I'm just going to give that to you uh, for your own study. I'm not going to go through that uh, line by line. When was Jonah written? So Jonah predates Amos, the prophet. Um, he predicted that, that Jeroboam would expand the kingdom in 2 Kings 14.25. And so it is very likely that he ministered in the early part of the king of King Jeroboam, that'd be Jeroboam II, his reign, because Amos came later in the reign and would announce, Amos would announce that God was going to judge Israel and, and Jeroboam. So, so likely early Jeroboamic era. Yes, I love making up words. That's, you know, you've got to do that. Sometimes you don't have the right word. So early in the reign of, of Jeroboam, more than, more than likely. So what are some themes? Besides the outline that I've given you there, let me just kind of point out some themes. Many of you are, are, are somewhat familiar already with the storyline of Jonah. Uh, if, if nothing else, you probably know Jonah was told to go preach to Nineveh 
Jonah said, no, I'm going to Tarshish instead. I'm going the opposite direction of God's command because I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then he gets swallowed by a whale. That's kind of the, that's kind of the story, right? But that's only really half of the story because then he turns himself around and goes where God tells him to go. And a lot of times that's where the story ends. Like when you're telling it to, to Sunday school kids, that's where the story ends. But, but if you read the book, what you realize is Jonah didn't have a change of heart. He did the old, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside deal. Right? I'm, I'm going to Nineveh on the outside, but I'm still going to Tarsus on the inside. That's, that's what Jonah's doing. So, so really, we get to the end of the book, and God calls him out for his, his rebellious insolence. Now, as we see all that narrative unfolding, what do we learn about God? Well, one of the things that we see come through is God's omnipresence. God's presence is constant. It's, it's obvious to the reader as you read it through, but it seems to be unapparent to the book's namesake. That's, so look in, look in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Watch verse 3 carefully. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's called irony. Because <laughs> you're sitting there as the reader going, <laughs> no, you're not. Like, you can't get away from God. That's Jonah's perspective. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going I'm to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so Jonah, okay, certainly he understands theologically as a prophet that you can't flee from God, but it's, it's in his blind rebellion, he seems unaware or at least choosing to ignore what he knows to be true about God. God's everywhere. You cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. And so Jonah 1.3 is the first kind of ironic mention of God's omnipresence. This idea that Jonah was running from the presence of the Lord emphasizes the theme of God's presence because the reader fills it in. The reader re recognizes what is happening. So in the story, Jonah's belief that he could escape the God of Israel is quickly answered. Watch verse 4. But the Lord, right? It's the end of verse 3, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. The theme of God's presence resounds loudly right from the beginning of the book. And then we go on to see that even pagan sailors recognize that God, or at least a God, has sent this storm. Again, it's, it's highlighting this theme like even the pagans realize you can't get away from God. They don't even know who the true God is. They don't even recognize Yahweh as the true. Yet they get it. <laughs> and Jonah, God's prophet, is closing his ears to the reality that he knows. So then Jonah in chapter 1 is thrown 
from the ship. He sinks to the bottom of the sea. And chapter 2 is, is, a, is a poem. It is a psalm. It speaks in verse 6 of him going to the bases of the mountain, having seaweed wrapped around his head. To the ancient mind, this would evoke the idea of being at the extreme end of creation. Remember, the psalmist talks about God's omnipresence, and he says, if I'm remembering the reference correctly, Psalm 139, if I descend to the depths of the sea, even there you will find me. It's an ancient way of saying, you know, like, to the ends of the world, to the ends of the universe, as far as I can go, God is still there. And so Jonah actually weaves this into his psalm. Uh, yeah, Psalm 139.9. Even if the far reaches of creation where the presence of the Lord may seem to be eluded, we're told that Jonah's prayer reached the year of Yahweh, chapter 2, verse 7. Even at the end of creation, God's still there. He still hears. And so God's presence is not so easily escaped as the prophet had imagined. And so he discovers the attempt to evade God is it's futile. It's a lost cause. And that is when the conviction of God's presence becomes a reality. Right? He knew theologically. He knew the reality of God's presence. He knew that it was constant, but now he's, he's being convinced of it in a real-world way. Like any God-fearing person, including Jonah, we, we come to an understanding of God's omnipresent, first as a theological truth, and then as a reality. Now, when it comes home to us, when it really hits our heart that God is everywhere, God sees everything, God hears everything, He knows all things, there are one of two responses. Oh, that's so comforting. God's here. He's with me. He sees. I, I, nowhere can I go that I'm escaped from him. What a comfort. Even when the, the power's out and the water's out and I feel like I'm kind of all alone because my cell phone battery's dead, God's still here. What a comfort. On the other hand, there's another response to God's presence, right? Oh, God sees me everywhere. Even what I do in secret, even even where I surf, when I even even when I delete my cookies and I, I delete my history, God still sees it. Even when I turn off geo tracking on my phone because I'm going somewhere that I I, I'm, I shouldn't be going, God still follows me there. That's a source of conviction as well. Well. Which of those two was Jonah's response? <laughs> it was not, oh, good, God's everywhere. Right? He was trying to get away from God. He was running from God. And so Jonah expressly says his purpose of flight to Tarsus was to escape the presence of God. And so from his very initial journey, Jonah undoubtedly knew that he couldn't escape God, but he was going to try anyway. The soldiers cast lots. Jonah acknowledged blame for the storm, for the plight of the sailors. There was no confusion in Joanna's, uh, in Joanna's, sorry, in Jonah's mind <laughs> uh, as to the plight of the sailors. The, he, he knew what was going on, and he actually knew that this was a, a just and right thing to do for him to be thrown into the sea. 
He was riddled with conviction. Jonah never, at least in the book, Jonah never viewed God's presence as a comfort but as a curse. Uh, We never see Jonah rejoicing in the omnipresence of God. And that's the reality. As long as a follower of God continues in sin, God's presence will remain a source of conviction. And so our response is the same this morning. Where do we stand in relation with God? Is His presence a comfort to us or it is a source of conviction to us? And that choice is is really ours in the way we relate to our sin. If we repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and His presence is a comfort. If we persist in our rebellion, then we must recognize that God's presence is going to be to us a, a curse, something that will plague us. So God's presence, God's omnipresence, is definitely a theme that comes through in the book of Jonah. As you read it, perhaps you'll observe that as well. Another theme that I think is important for us to consider in this little book is God's patience in, so, in showing a second chance. The most apparent illustration of God's patience is the prophetic record of Jonah is actually Jonah himself. The fact that God is is patient with a prophet whose duty was to do the bidding of God, yet rebelliously refused to do it. He was to proclaim the message of God. He He wasn't to shirk on it. He wasn't to augment it. He wasn't to diminish it. And so in fulfilling this role, the prophet didn't have an option of which messages he preached. God said, preach a message, and the prophet was obligated to preach exactly what God had told him to preach. That's the charge that was given to Jonah. And there's no reason to believe that Jonah had been anything but a faithful prophet up to this point. I mean, we know him as, you know, the rebellious prophet. But... But there's no reason to actually assume that prior to this, Jonah had been anything but obedient. Sadly, Jonah rebelled from his duty, and he chose to run from the commands of God. And the following, the count that follows that rebellion shows us God's patience with a disobedient servant. Rather than casting him aside, the Lord actually draws him back and gives him an opportunity for a second chance, and yea, even a third chance. It seems that Jonah didn't recognize what was happening. Jonah didn't recognize God's patience. But this in itself is a revelation of God's mercy. God didn't owe him any leniency for his flagrant waywardness. Yet notice the, second, the opening to the second half of the book, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now it's interesting because the author uses the exact same Hebrew words as he used in 1-1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, verbatim. And then he adds... A second time. This identical language highlights the significance of the second chance that God is giving Jonah. Yet, even after Jonah's 
reluctant obedience. He, again, irony right here, he, 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 he seems frustrated <laughs> with God's mercy. Jonah seems to believe that he deserved a second chance, but that the pagan nation of Assyria didn't. And so this book points out for us how hypocritical we tend to be because we think we deserve God's mercy. We think we deserve God's grace, but those people over there, not so much. And this is what Jonah points to in our hearts, is this tendency to think of ourselves in a different category, as somehow more deserving of God's mercy, more deserving of God's grace. Jonah's message to the Ninevites actually mentions no possibility of forgiveness. But the very fact that God is sending a prophet to warn them is in itself an extension of mercy, an opportunity to repent. Actually, God's patience will eventually run out with the Assyrians a hundred years later, approximately. God will judge the Assyrians, but God's patient mercy still extends to the undeserving. And so, I mentioned it at the outset, the Assyrians were known for their great violence, for their warfare, for the cruelty that they exhibited to conquering nations. I mean, it was infamous in that day. History indicates for us that they were a feared nation, they were a hated nation. Their, their pride, their self-aggrandizement further contributed to Israel's perception that they deserve immediate judgment from God. And so it's certain that Jonah believed God should judge them without delay. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Many nations come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. I mean, this is what Jonah is saying about Assyria. Don't, I'm not going to judge Israel, but that wicked nation, Assyria... They deserve God's wrath to be unleashed right now. And so the defiant prophet acknowledges that God is a God of second chances, that, that he was granting the Ninevites a, a, an opportunity to repent, and that that is completely consistent with the character of Yahweh. Right? Look at this, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong page. Chapter 4, verse 1, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Like, God, I told you this would happen. <laughs> and this is just, the irony is just rich. God has extended mercy to him, and he dares to shake his fist in the face of God and say, God, see, I told you they would repent, and you wouldn't judge them. You would give them a respite. You would give them mercy. I mean, he's like a petulant child here. 
stomping his foot and saying, God, it's not fair. You're being nice to them. I mean, he's throwing a temper tantrum and actually throwing God's own character, trying to throw God's own character back in his face and said, yeah, this is the type of God that you are. You're a forgiving God. Gracious, merciful, abundant in mercy. And so there's this incredible irony that Jonah wants to see the Ninevites punished while simultaneously enjoying the very mercy he wishes God would withhold from Nineveh. And so that's seen even more in the fourth chapter, which follows Jonah's message to the Ninevites. Jonah is quite disturbed in chapter 4 that God would spare a pagan nation. And even as Jonah complains about God's mercy, God is patient. He cares for Jonah by sending a plant to shade him from the desert sun. And the final chapter illustrates that God continuously pours out his mercy on humanity. So there's this incident with this plant that grows up. It shades Jonah, and then it is struck down again. And this is God's object lesson to demonstrate to Jonah that his perception of justice is skewed. Jonah regrets the loss of the shade plant, yet he wishes for the destruction of innocent and repentant people. And so God points out this incongruity in Jonah's attitude. Watch it at the very end of chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, You have pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished at night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. Jonah, you care more about a plant than people. And that's the end of the book. You're like, whoa, cliffhanger here. What happens? And I actually think that that is done intentionally to, to dramatically point out the question that God is asking at the very end of this book. What do you really care about? You, you care more, Jonah, you care more about a plant than about people. And it really highlights God's patient and our own unwillingness to reflect the patience of God. Now, there's a sub-theme kind of when we talk about God's patience and our lack of it and our skewed sense of justice. Because Jonah is actually hating a group of people because of their national identity. And so I actually see some hints of, of reminders here about justice as it is extended to other people groups. Jonah was a nationalist toujours. I mean, he was the ultimate nationalist. To such an extent that he thought those that were not part of their nation should have God's judgment poured out upon him. We need to be very careful in American evangelicalism to not allow a racist nationalistic mentality to creep into our thinking. We need to be very aware that that kind of thinking is incommensurate with the kind of God we serve who loves all people. 
And if we allow our prideful hearts to well up and say, well, I'm better because I'm part of this group or I'm somehow more deserving of God's favor because I, am, I was born into this family or I'm of this ethnic makeup or I'm from this particular country or go on down the list, we are reflecting the same sinful attitude that racist Jonah had in hating another group of people. God is patient. And we as his followers ought to recognize that that is something we should rejoice in. His mercy. His long-suffering. Because he has been so merciful and long-suffering to us. What about people that are guilty of certain sins that you find particularly repugnant? Particularly uh, sins that you just, you just you know, scrunch up your nose at. It's just gross. It's just heinous. It's just beyond the pale. Do we put those people in a different category? Oh, God's, God's mercy. Yeah, that, that's wonderful here. I don't know about that, though. I don't know that God's mercy extends that far. We have to be very careful when we think about others to understand who God is and express His patience, His long-suffering and rejoicing. One last theme I want us to see in the book of Jonah, and that is that God's purposes will be accomplished despite man's sinful choices. The whole reason for this book, the, the, the catalyst behind this whole book, is that the sins of Nineveh had come to the attention of God. Obviously, that doesn't mean it's new information to God. Uh, rather, their sin had grown so severe that God's justice required acting upon it. Now, so there's a couple, couple things to be noted here in relation to God's purpose. First, God had chosen to warn the Ninevite people of impending judgment. As I, as I alluded to earlier, implicit in that notification is a call to repentance. That's the reason he sent a prophet. Secondly, it's apparent that Jonah was the chosen vessel to, to bear this pronouncement. But don't miss this. The purposes of God are never dissuaded by the rebellion of people. Let me say that again. The purposes of God are never dissuaded by rebellious people. Now, this is a difficult theological concept for us to wrap our brains around. You know why? Because we're finite. And for us to accomplish a certain outcome, we have to have certain input. But God is so much more sovereign than that. He is so much more powerful than that that we see even in this book the theme that God is the sovereign of all things. That includes creation, right at the beginning of the book. Right? God, God hurls the storm. God's power is brought to bear, furthermore, to the purpose of saving souls. So consider nature in this book. God uses nature to accomplish His purposes. In chapter 1, Jonah sets out on this sea journey, he sets out on this plan to avoid God's, uh, really he's, he's trying to avoid participating in God's judgment, or God's mercy rather. His intent 
to rescue the pagans. Jonah wants to have no part of it. He knows, he knows Yahweh is ruler of the sea, chapter 9, or excuse me, verse 9 of chapter 1, but he tries to use the sea as an escape route. And so in response to this, chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, just like, just like someone would throw a rock across the pond. As easily as that is done, God hurls a storm. But not for any purpose, just, but, it, but to accomplish His purpose. God's use of creation in order to bring Jonah doesn't stop there, of course. We have this fish that swallows Jonah, and you literally have a story of a man swallowed by a fish and living to tell about it. I mean, if there's, if there's no... I can't imagine a, a better illustration of God's power over nature to accomplish his purposes. But Jonah, of course, opposed the idea of participating in God's salvation plan. He wanted to avoid involvement in God's plan of mercy, and so then God uses the pagans to accomplish his purposes. God's design from the outset was to show mercy to Assyria. The purpose accomplished here is that the city repents in chapter 3. God's purposes were accomplished. And despite the best efforts of a rebellious prophet, despite the irrefutable witness of the, uh, wickedness of the people, God still accomplishes repentance in the city of Nineveh. They turn from their wickedness. God is so infinite in His sovereignty that He is capable of glorifying Himself through man's good choices, like the repentance of Nineveh, or through man's evil choices, as in the case of Jonah's rebellion. One commentator puts it well and says it this way, that God should choose to make his own actions contingent, at least in part, upon the actions of humans is in no way a limitation of his sovereignty. God's in control. He accomplishes purposes. You and I can choose to fight against them. We can rebel against them. And there will be consequences for that rebellion. We will be held responsible for that rebellion. Yet God be praised, He's still in control. Your attempt to wrest the controls from Him and make the outcome go a certain way does not threaten His sovereignty. And that is all the more reason for us to submit to the purposes of God, to humble ourselves, to willingly participate in what God is doing. And God is giving second chances. God is extending opportunities for people to repent. And so I wonder this morning, how do we see ourselves in Jonah? Do we chafe against God's purposes? Do we rebel against Him? Do we find in our heart threads of unwillingness to forgive? To extend the same mercy, the same grace to others that has been extended to us? Do we recognize that God sees it all? Even what is happening in our heart of hearts, God is everywhere and sees all things. As we think this morning about Jonah, we rejoice that God is the God of the second chances. Lord, we thank you for our time.
We thank you for the lessons of this little book. There's just so much, Lord, that we can learn. Sadly, there are many things that we see in Jonah that we find in our own hearts. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you even this morning, to repent of sin, to turn to you, 